Today on Edge Effects. Rubber workers did a lot to contribute to the current political power. You see struggles over nature continuing, but struggles over labor echoing, at least in some ways, some colonial struggles over labor. Historian Jeffrey Guarneri speaks with historian Mich Takiyaso about Aso's new book, Rubber and the Making of Vietnam An Ecological History, 1897 to 1975. They discuss how rubber plantations made the French colony of Indochina and post-independence Vietnam a nexus of capitalism, scientific knowledge, exploitation, and resistance, and how they continue to shape post-colonial visions of agriculture and medicine through the end of the U.S.-Vietnam War. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Mitch Takeyasu. Mitch, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Thanks to having me here. Yeah. So I guess this is uh, kind of a bit of a homecoming for you, actually, since you uh, got your PhD here back in, uh, what was it, 2011? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, t- yeah, 2011. It's It seems like much longer ago. <laughs> I mean, it's it's gone quickly, but that's a long time ago. Yeah. Cool. Well, either way, we're really happy to have you back. Yeah, no, it's good to be back. So uh, as we mentioned in the leader today, we're going to be talking uh, about your book, Rubber and the Making of Vietnam. Um, but uh, since this book is actually pretty fresh off the presses, uh, for those of our audience members who are not familiar with you or your work, I was hoping that you could give us a, an elevator pitch version of your book, uh, as well as a brief story of what brought you to the project. Sure. Um, yeah, so the book is about rubber, uh, obviously, in, in, in the title. And uh, how it shaped, um, I would say, Vietnam, Vietnamese society, and Vietnamese environment, in the, at the from the end of the 19th century into the tw- well into the 20th century until really 1975, um, and I I argue that uh, rubber is a key well it's, it's a key global commodity, but um, it's also a key uh, local product. Uh, that uh, really reshapes the environment and the society of Vietnam in the south and in this border region with Cambodia, but also, uh, you know, informs the way in which the whole of Vietnam uh, is thought of in the way that the the Vietnamese uh, economy works, the way that uh, Vietnamese uh, society's relationship to, to nature have been uh, informed in, you know, in, in ways that now may be less visible, but are, are definitely there. So that's the the kind of uh, summary of what I was I was looking at. I'm I'm interested in uh, a- aspects of labor uh, that take place on the plantation, um, but I'm also and this goes in, in partly into uh, what brought me to the project. Uh, I was at UW Madison in the history of science uh, department and history of medicine department, which um, have now been merged into uh, the history departments. And so um, my my interest in rubber. Uh, also stem from the history of science and the history of medicine uh, and the ways in which the, the sort of knowledge creation uh, around this, this product also uh, informed the ways that uh, people in Vietnam uh, think about the environment, people in Vietnam think about you know, society. So that's, that's definitely part of the, the book. Now, in terms of where the original idea or where the kind of um, interest in, in rubber uh, which you know is, is kind of a very uh, sort of right now esoteric product, and and sort of uh, although in the 19th century very visible and and, and new, it's now it's uh, less uh, less thought of. I, I would say, especially in the in certain places, unless you're you know really thinking about your tires or something. What got me interested in this this topic was uh, I was teaching English in uh, Vietnam 
uh, right after I graduated from college uh, back in uh, 1998, 1999, uh, for a couple of years. And so I, I first started teaching in Southern Vietnam in a teacher's training college. And the city in Southern Vietnam is called uh, Bien Hoa was during the colonial era, the, the center of production of rubber. It was one of the sort of uh, main cities in the rubber producing region. And so uh, when I was living there about a um, year and a half in the South, I uh, first saw, I, I saw my first rubber plantation and uh, I had no idea what these things were. I was really, really curious. Um, now they're their range is uh, much different than it was during the colonial era. But if you drive out towards either Cambodia or up into the Central Highlands, you, you definitely still uh, see them along the, the highway. So as I got to know people in the South and, and friends, and I, um, I got to think about uh, Southern Vietnam uh, as, a, as a place and sort of the ways that I, I started to learn it, uh, I, I grew curious about rubber and, and its effects. But then the, the kind of project, the uh, intellectual uh, project didn't coalesce until graduate school. So in around the, uh, after a couple of years at Madison in the history of science uh, program, uh, I became uh, interested in colonial medicine, uh, in colonial science, and the ways in which those uh, uh, projects were informed uh, by uh, production and commodities. And so uh, rubber seemed to be, uh, then I returned to rubber and, and it seemed to be a good way to combine a uh, number of uh, different interests in uh, environmental history, uh, in the history of Vietnam in the 20th century, and uh, in the history of uh, global commodity. And so that it seemed to, it, it struck me as a, as a, at least an interesting start for the project. And um, and then, so I carried it through. Great. No, I'm always a, I'm, I will admit that I'm a sucker for those kinds of projects where it, it always starts out with a cool personal story. But I mean, as you said, one of the most uh, interesting things about it is that it really does draw on all of these themes. It's not just a local history, it's a global history. And so that's one of the things I found most fascinating as I was reading through. Although uh, there is a lot to cover, so I guess my questions will kind of uh, range, uh, run the gamut. But uh, what I wanted to lead off with was um, talking a little bit more about colonial science on the rubber plantations. And particularly with uh, when you deal with colonial science in the earlier part of the colonial period, you point to this divide between how French colonial scientists uh, conceptualized ecology, uh, i.e. ecological sciences, um, as something meant to maximize the output of the, uh, quote, environment. Uh, whereas medicine was seen as this means of maximizing uh, labor productivity from Vietnamese bodies. Uh, so why do we see the separation of the two? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I actually didn't mean to uh, create too much of a separation between the two. And, and uh, I think I talk about agricultural sciences in chapter two and, and then uh, medicine in chapter three, colonial medicine. And in fact, I, I think that there are two aspects of this you know, maximizing, as you call it, uh, labor productivity, uh, and maximizing, you know, human and non-human labor. Uh, so what, I, what I'd found in, you know, when I was looking around at, at different uh, models of, of books and, and different approaches to uh, colonial medicine and colonial agriculture, uh, was that those projects, uh, you know, were, were fascinating and, and really useful. And, and the books were very useful. But uh, those two activities uh, of agriculture and medicine tended to be divided into different books. And, uh, you know, one of the cool things about Wisconsin is, of course, the overlap between 
uh, you know, history of agriculture, history of medicine, history of environment. And so to, to me, that, that synthesis actually seemed to be uh, more interesting or, or perhaps, you know, not necessarily an, uh, an absolute synthesis, but at least a, a parallel consideration of how agricultural sciences and medical sciences in the early 20th century were, were such, you know, interrelated uh, activities and, and uh, created knowledge that often was, was aimed towards similar ends, which, which as you said, is, you know, maximizing uh, labor, whether human or non-human labor, productivity and output. And so I tried to, to get into the, uh, the specifics of those two projects and then, uh, you know, think about them together and, and think about them as, as revolving around the rubber plantation or, or rubber production uh, more generally. So I don't, you know, I don't see those sciences as, as separate uh, I, I see them as as very much aiming for the the same thing. Now, in terms of ecology, that's that's an interesting one because, of course, ecology is a discipline that, you know, from its beginning and and in the early twentieth century, is about forming uh, connections and forming um, seeing interconnectedness. Right? It's a sort of science. You know, one colonial ecologist or colonial scientist defined it really as the as the science of interconnections. And so, I think that that you know the ecology, the French ecologists who were very much co-opted by the plantation project and very much uh, co-opted by the colonial economy, as as all uh, colonial scientists were to a degree, to more more or less of a degree. These ecologists were also thinking about how agricultural activity, how how medical control of the bodies, uh, human bodies, Vietnamese bodies. You know, we're we're parallel, right? And so you can you can think about, uh, especially in the chapter on medical sciences, I, I talk about malaria and mosquitoes and the ways in which plantation changing landscape use and uh, changing environments result in increased malaria uh, for and, and you know increased incidence of malaria among uh, Vietnamese labor that becomes a real problem. For plantations, you know, simply from the fact that they they need large amounts of labor, and so when the ecologist and or, or as I should say, when the medical scientists, for example, at the Pasteur Institute, are called in to to try to bring malaria under control on plantations, their thinking and their approach has to be across these different uh, disciplines of of agriculture and medicine. Uh, so I think even, you know, within, I'm not, you know, I wanted to say that, that at the time in the early 20th century, the colonial era, scientists were trying to also conceive, you know, breaking away in some sense away from this divide between agriculture and medicine that, you know, kind of uh, arose with the, the creation of the disciplines. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I think that very much uh, shown through in the uh, the early part of the book. So another thing that I noted uh, was that we see kind of uh, moving onward that during the final decades of the French colonial rule uh, from away from the early 20th century and more to the 1920s to the 1940s, um, we see the the messaging surrounding this, this science that you're talking about um, and scientific production in the colony, uh, of especially surrounding rubber production, is always just kind of out of reach for the French colonial authorities um, and plantation owners, um, with kind of the French authorities on one hand really taking up science and um, 
uh, whether it's medicine or uh, the ecological sciences, as a means of increasing revenue. And Vietnamese technicians uh, who are trained under these uh, French colonial institutions really seeing it as a means of uh, strengthening the nation, which presents us with this really fascinating contradiction between this robust program of knowledge production by colonial institutions on the one hand, and the inability of those very same institutions to really define what the knowledge meant in the colony at large on the other. So my question is, uh, does this open up further discussion for the role played by instruments of imperial control, uh, like colonial sciences and knowledge production, in creating the conditions of possibility for resistance in Vietnam? Yes, absolutely. I think you you really articulated that point well, and I, I thank you for that. Yeah, I think I think it does. Uh, I think that you know, with um, there's there's been works on uh, the colonial era that have looked at how you know various forms of policing or various uh, other mechanisms of control or, or political activity, uh, whatnot, have been uh, used to uh, resist uh, the, the imperial form of control, the colonial form of control. So, you know, they're, they're the, the famous way of, of uh, talking about uh, tools of empire, right, of course. Uh, and, and I think a lot of the literature in the um, recently has been dealing with the way that these tools have been re- refashioned, right, and sort of reused to promote uh, nationalism or to promote uh, anti-colonial projects. And so I think that uh, you know, what what with uh, plantations, there it's it's a constant struggle uh, between the those you know the french planters and french officials who view uh plantations and the knowledge creation around them uh, knowledge creation of the colonial state as as you know for, furthering the colonial project and then the what's you know the vietnamese who are tasked with kind of create actually the, the kind of the work of creating this knowledge um, who view the project in a very different means right and and then and i think that's one thing that's quite quite interesting about the case of Vietnam or, you know, the, you know, French Indochina, which is Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, that uh, there were so few French in uh, French Indochina that, you know, the, again, the majority of the work is taken up by Vietnamese, either technicians or, or sometimes even medical doctors or, or agricultural scientists. And once the, that, you know, these Vietnamese who have been trained by the colonial state are, are doing this knowledge creation, of course, they're, they're often thinking about knowledge as, as promoting the nation, right? And that can be uh, kind of a conservative nationalism. And there, you know, there are different projects of, of nationalism. So the, often you'll see the, the Vietnamese who are, you know, doing the creating of this knowledge at professing fairly conservative politics. And so politics that talk about strengthening the nation or strengthening the family or, um, you know, some kind of collaborative work with French colonial, French imperial officials, um, the French imperial project is often what, what these, these scientists are talking about, the Vietnamese scientists. But you do get some, and especially near, uh, during World War II, and then after World War II, when when you have a, a Vietnamese nation, the the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, and and the Viet Minh, who are you know the anti-colonial resistance, uh, once the these uh, resistance groups, uh, the Viet Minh in particular, open up a, a place for uh, some scientists, Vietnamese scientists, to go, uh, you see a much more radical expression of the role that colonial science and knowledge production can play in fighting against the French empire or the colonial state. 
so somewhat depending on the broader political landscape, uh, you'll see uh, Vietnamese scientists taking this the use of, of knowledge production in different ways, anti or national and towards nationalism, definitely, but then whether it's it's more of a conservative nationalism or a, a more of a radical anti-colonial nationalism, that, that depends. No, and I think one of the, uh, I can't recall if this was at the end of your introduction or towards the end of the book, but I think a, a lot of what that highlights is when you mentioned that you don't really see there being a, a set end to this history because it always is a history that's in process. And I think that's something we very much see in this sort of contestation uh, between and across these different colonial and post-colonial divides. So my next question might be a little bit self-indulgent because I'm someone who tends to work on uh, on symbols. But I was a little curious as to how um, in the first Indochina War from 1946 to 1954, we see the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, or what would eventually become that, um, the Viet Minh, and these plantation laborers uh, all reinventing the plantation as symbol during this period. And in doing so, how they made plantations into these revolutionary spaces, as you call them, um, that were uh, at the heart of the French colonial project, um, but still firmly beyond the control of either colonial authorities or all of these different independence movements that were fighting the French forces. And I'm also taken by this idea of what you call the resistance economy uh, surrounding on rubber plantations uh, that you put forth in your fifth chapter. So would you be able to elaborate on this? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the question of economy and and symbols is totally complicated and, and really, really large, right? And it's hard to um, I mean, there's there's so many uh, directions to to take that. Uh, I think what I I tried to focus in on the book was the particular role that plantations played in the conception of a, an economy, right? And um, so, without you know getting too theoretical, there plantations played a certain role in the colonial economy and the imperial economy, uh, in which they were seen as providing revenue for. Uh, the French imperial state, um, to a degree seen as providing rubber for uh, the French uh, nation and, you know, especially for companies like uh, Michelin and uh, tire production. But, you know, that that sort of tie between uh, Vietnamese and Cambodian rubber and, and France is, is pretty weak in the sense that you know, most rubber went to Singapore and then was sort of uh, sold off into different different places after that. But this, you know, so so during the first Indochina War, nineteen you know forty six to nineteen fifty four, and um, you have one kind of resistance economy being built, which is uh, the national economy uh, in southern Vietnam. And so, as different groups are trying to envision a post colonial Vietnam, uh, trying to envision what you know, Vietnamese, Vietnamese economy will look like uh, after uh, the French leave uh, and after there's a, there's a national state, whatever, you know, form that nation takes, there's a sense in which the, you know, it could be a, a Vietnamese economy that works largely within the global econ- global capitalist economy, largely, you know, cooperative with the French, but still, you know, a national economy. Um, in, in some sense, a, an economy working with, a, say, a, a federated states uh, model, you know. And the South Vietnamese who are put in some kind of positions of leadership um, under the associate states of Vietnam with, you know, largely symbolic leadership, but, you know, some kind of power do push for control of, of this, of plantation resources. And so they do push for Vietnamese, for example, Vietnamese inclusion on uh, what's what's called the 
uh, comptoir de caoutchouc, the you know rubber trading board, and you know they they start to uh, want to exercise some kind of oversight over Viet- what's considered as a as a you know Vietnamese space, uh, the plantation. But the French are are really really either resistant or completely dismissive to to these calls to uh, nationalize to make these plantations into Vietnamese. Uh, controlled spaces. So, you know, in, so, in some ways, that that resistance economy of the, the the South fails. But what the revolutionaries, the the Viet Minh, um, during the first Indochina War, you know, the the communist driven uh, revolutionaries are able to do is actually take a lot of the plantation resources and then uh, siphon them off to the revolution. And so um, things like uh, you know, uh, well, initially during the first Indochina War, there's actually a, a sense in which the revolutionary, anti-colonial revolutionaries, just want to destroy the plantation economy. And so, you know, and that that's where the symbolism comes in. Uh, worker, especially rubber workers, are thinking that you know this the plantation is the source of uh, this misery and this this uh, exploitation. And uh, really, you know, it's it's seen as a you know, hated colonial symbol. And so, up until the late 1940s, um, most of the revolutionary work is a is is aimed at um, some kind of destruction, right? Uh, whether it's taking the bark off the trees, uh, killing the trees, burning uh, the trees, burning rubber, doing something to to stop production and to permanently, in some ways, destroy the colonial production, but by the late 1940s, uh, you know, revolutionary leaders and and others who are kind of looking forward past the first Indochina War and trying to think about what a Vietnamese economy would look like, um, start to think rethink this question and see that plantations can be valuable resources, um, both during the fighting, during the resistance against the French, and but then also um, afterwards uh, when uh, you know whatever Vietnamese state is established, uh, it will need to produce something, uh, whether in a socialist economy or a, a capitalist economy. And so these Vietnamese uh, resistance leaders, the, the Viet Minh, start to call for la- laborers and you know, f- sort of the foot soldiers of the resistance to uh, not so much destroy these plantations, but to redirect the, the resources. So either turn them away from the French or uh, at, at even better, uh, take the rubber, for example, and then uh, sell it uh, on the market themselves, or take medicines that are stockpiled on plantations, uh, and then uh, uh, you know use them for resistance fighters. Um, there's a, one example of even some uh, Viet Minh resistance uh, taking an airplane uh, that is part of a plantation and using it to uh, then go up and survey where, you know, where soldiers are, where the French soldiers are. And so that's kind of an example of where, you know, these kinds of uh, infrastructural projects are open to being rediverted, right? Being uh, kind of repurposed for for different ideologies, for different people, uh, for different projects. And, uh, you know, in that way, plantations are are, uh, like other types of infrastructure. 
uh, that that can be taken and and, and controlled and, and diverted. Yeah, I really like that image of the uh, the revolutionaries hijacking the plane and flying about with it. So another aspect of your book that uh, another aspect of your book that really grabbed me was um, how these plantations end up becoming a borderlands of sorts, in large part because of where they're situated on the Vietnam Cambodia border, uh, particularly during the Vietnam War from 1963 to 1975, and how because they're situated on this border between uh, Vietnam and Cambodia, which are both the parts of the former colony of Indochina, uh, how this means they were seldom the tightly controlled spaces that we might typically think of with regards to plantations. So instead of that, you show us that they were ultimately these uh, fundamentally uncontrollable spaces and kind of a sort of plantation as borderland that uh, that uh, compromised the reach of both the colonial uh, and post-colonial state and also a number of the corporations that had been based there. Um, so I was curious as to whether or not I'm reading this right, and if so, how this might help us to reevaluate the plantation form at this decolonial moment of the early Cold War and uh, Vietnamese independence. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great insight. Um, and I think, uh, you know, here the, the specificity, as you mentioned, of, of Vietnam and Cambodia matters, right? And and where you have not, you know, these plantations are in in a lot of ways defined by their position on the borderlands, right? So plantations on borderlands and uh, that that location of where the rubber plantations are are put um, matters a lot. And so if you walk on this land today and you know you you look at it and you go from the Vietnamese side of the border to the Cambodian side of the border, there's really no natural feature that defines that border. Right? Whether you're in the the rolling foothills where the plantations are, or if you go further south into the rice growing country uh, of the Mekong Delta, you know there may there may be a canal that's that's been dug, uh, the Vintay Canal in the in the Mekong Delta that's defining a border. You know, 19th century Nguyen era border, but that largely people were and and still are crossing this border um pretty easily right it's not you know this is this is not there's no wall here right and there's no kind of big barrier it's also you know, really still in some ways but but definitely during the colonial era only weakly politically defined right once the, the french uh, conquer vietnam uh, and cambodia and laos uh they do establish this political border uh, as a colonial state will do, but it's not, you know, it's not a huge priority because there's, it's an internal border in some sense, right? It's an internal frontier within the space of French colonial Indochina. So, so during the Vietnam War, that that's kind of the legacy of the border uh, land. And during the Vietnam War, this border where where the plantations are located actually hardens in a lot of ways. I think that. Uh, and the plantations have, you know, are both affected by that hardening and, and contribute to it. And, uh, you know, this, here the specifics matter, right? In, during the Vietnam War well, and, and the fighting leading up to it, you know, the sort of uh, jockeying, Cambodia and Laos are neutral countries. And so, you know, neither the U.S. military nor the Arvin, the South Vietnamese military, uh, nor the the North Vietnamese military, uh, the DRV military, the Pavin, and the the uh, South Vietnamese revolutionaries even are are not supposed to be in Cambodia or Laos. Uh, but of course, they both are right. All sides are operating in Cambodia and Laos, 
Um, there's, you know, it's the secret bombings of Laos that's taking place. It's the secret air war. There are incursions of U.S. And after 1965, U.S. and Arvin militaries into Cambodia. And, and, and of course, much of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, where you know men and materiel are moving from North Vietnam to South Vietnam, runs through Laos and Cambodia. And so um, the plantations become, by their position uh, on the border, really you know, key, key spots of contestation and uh, uh, entry, right? And that that's specific to Vietnam, Cambodia. And, you know, again, you think about our other types of plantations during the Cold War, um, you know, even in very close by in, in Malaya, British Malaya, there's the, the, you know, the communist insurgency called the emergency, largely takes place among Chinese labor workers and on plantations, often rubber plantations. Um, but there's not the the same border dynamics uh, as you see operating between Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, and Laos, and you know the the um, plantations in uh, Sumatra, rubber plantations in Sumatra, in uh, Indonesia more generally, uh, same thing or or elsewhere. Um, you know, without that that sort of border and, and the, the active hot war that's taking place and the rules of uh, international rules of engagement and neutrality versus wartime uh, situation uh, in different countries, uh, that all matters. Of course, there's also the specificity of the rubber tree itself, right, that that makes a difference for how these plantations on the border operate. And so the rubber tree is, well, I should step back, the, the form that rubber production takes place in Vietnam is uh, largely plantation and large plantation, especially what, you know, most of it owned by French, but some owned by, by Vietnamese middle-class or, or, you know, upper middle-class uh, elite folks, but the French control the vast majority of the land and, and, and decide to organize production in, in vast plantations. Now this could have been different. This could have been a, you know, small patchwork of smallholders, Vietnamese especially, but, you know, some French, which would have created a, a much more, uh, much less homogenous, much more heterogeneous landscape, and would have been a much different place. So the way that then the vast plantations matter is that, you know, these on these plantations, right, because of the efficiency question, and because the French, you know, agricultural sciences are, you know, defining uh, sort of certain ways of production, um, that, that are the best. The, the trees are planted in very neat rows uh, and, you know, with, with sort of equal spacing between them. And then also the brush between these trees is cleared. So the idea is that, you know, whether actually that turns out ecologically, if you're thinking, you know, in terms of the health of the rubber tree, uh, brush clearing is not the best thing because it, you know, eliminates some uh, ground cover. It's actually good to have some fertilization of the trees and to, to protect them uh, at certain stages. But but aesthetically, the neat rubber plantation with brush cleared between the trees is the way that, you know, planters kind of judged each other and then judged production. Now, this meant that this vast plantation of, of rubber trees, neatly spaced rubber trees with cleared areas between them gave some actually key advantages to uh, North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese resistance forces, communist forces, because they had uh, these plantations meant there was really great mobility by foot. So people, which the North Vietnamese and the National Liberation Front, NLF forces, were were often the ones on foot. They didn't have tanks and they didn't have jeeps to drive around in. Uh, and so they could they could move 
in these plantations quite easily. But the French and then later the American uh, vehicles and the South Vietnamese vehicles, such as tanks and trucks, didn't have great mobility in these plantations. So the the you know one of the advantages, uh, the mechanized advantage of uh, South Vietnam uh, was eliminated. This also has to do the advantages of the plantation also have to do with visibility. And so you, with the vast spaces of trees planted, you have limited horizontal visibility. So, you know, and, and if you ever walk around in a plantation, it's very uh, destabilizing and it's, it's like this just vast maze. Uh, and it's hard to see uh, that far in the distance. It just kind of fades into trees. And so, you know, North Vietnamese soldiers could move quite uh, undetected within this this area. It's also very hard to, especially during wartime conditions, con- exert enough control over a great plantation uh, to to control all parts of it. And so, you know, North Vietnamese and, and National Liberation Front forces uh, use the plantations actually as headquarters and would be able to move around and attack and then retreat. But also the vertical visibility, specifically related to rubber trees, uh, is greatly reduced. And so, uh, you know, France and South Vietnam and the U.S. all had really absolute dominance in terms of air power and could use the air power and air surveillance in certain places like the Mekong Delta or with, you know, with rice, with rice plants or in other places. Uh, but the rubber plantations uh, actually covered, you know, when, when the rubber trees were uh, in full, full leaf, you could not see onto the ground. And so this this canopy of rubber trees, again, eliminated one of the advantages, uh, huge advantages that the, the U.S. and the South Vietnamese had. So you see by the end of the, or, well, by the end, but really uh, within a few years of the arrival of the great number of U.S. military forces in 1965, U.S. policy actually becomes one of cutting down or trying to eliminate some some plantations, and so they sometimes there's herbicide spraying, uh, or sometimes uh, the plantations on the sides of roads are are cut down to eliminate the guerrilla, you know, attacks, the the surprise attacks, uh, ambushes that they would set up. But even that attempt to control the plantation space was restricted in certain interesting ways because. Uh, the plantations were still owned often by French companies. So, you know, Michelin in the late 60s sued the U.S. government for uh, destroying some of its plantations with herbicides. And so that, that you know, there was only so much uh, the, the South Vietnamese and the U.S. military could do to reform this landscape. And again, the, the interesting ways, not because of the natural limitations, but because of international law and economic limitations. Yeah, I think that that speaks to quite a few very fascinating themes in here. For one, just the whole how this kind of penultimate colonial project, the the rubber plantation ultimately ends up being a, a tool for the undoing of the colony, but how it's not especially when we look into the Vietnam War between the US and um, US South Vietnam and uh, North Vietnam, it's it's not limited to what's going on between those three uh, parties, but you you have global capital in here as well. And that really tells a very fascinating part of the story that I mean, I personally have not heard as richly told uh, prior to reading this book. So I think that's definitely one of the more interesting things to come out of this work. So continuing on with this idea of kind of unpacking how we make meaning out of plantations, um, and this is uh, a bit of a, a plug for what we're doing here at UW at the moment. Uh, we have been running this ongoing series of events uh, called the Sawyer Seminar, Interrogating the Plantation Essene, um, as part of this broader discussion about the Anthropocene. Um, and for listeners who might be unfamiliar with the term Plantation Essene, 
uh, it refers to this alternative take on the Anthropocene and the Capitalocene, uh, where human agency as the dominant force in global geological and ecological change really begins with the plantation form uh, in the Atlantic. And the adaptation and uh, adoption of plantation agriculture uh, to sugar plantations in the Caribbean, uh, cotton and tobacco in North America, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so under this system, we have natures, including people, other uh, other fauna and flora, being disciplined on the one hand, and um, also to borrow Raj Patel and Jason Moore's term, uh, they're cheapened in ways that maximize profit, but peripheralize the environmental and social risk of plantations to the global south or peripheral parts of the global north. So what I would like to know a little bit more about and hope you can speak to is whether or not you see your work as part of these debates on the plantation scene. And I'm curious, especially uh, because you show throughout your book that rubber plantations of Vietnam failed in many ways to discipline people in nature, uh, despite being created as tools for precisely that purpose. And this idea of disciplining nature being a, a key thing we talk about in our debates about the plantation scene. Yeah, that's that's great. My heart warms when I see UW uh, Madison engaged in these very cool projects, right? And that's that's really awesome. I, you know, I, the book was well underway and and sort of a train that could not be stopped uh, when this uh, when I when I was reading about the plantation scene as a as a concept. And I, I I didn't have time to introduce it uh, explicitly in the book, and I thought, oh, okay, that's that's fine. I'll you know just to have it uh, talk in in sort of uh, hopefully uh, direct ways, but not necessarily mention it by name. Um, and I think this is the interesting part. Maybe to pull back to the question of of you know global forms of different modes of production, or uh, you know the global plantation, uh, the global plantation during the Cold War. I, I think this is an interesting way to engage in it. And I, I kind of think of this question too in terms of some earlier work. So in the 19, 1990s. Phil Curtin, who is, you know, originally from UW Madison, taught in the world history program there for a long time, and then moved to, I think, Johns Hopkins. And he had done a lot of work on plantations. And he came up with a list of, you know, characteristics of the global plantation. Um, and I, I forgot exactly what he enumerated in that list, but it was, you know, it was a good good list and and uh, both detailed enough to cover a wide range of situations and yet general enough to to say something interesting to a broad audience. And so that list was very useful as I started my research uh, in the mid two thousands on on rubber and, and plantations in Vietnam, and I was thinking about how that list kind of worked as I as I read material in the Vietnamese and the French archives. But then as I yeah, I got further into the project, I started to to want to push back onto this idea of the global form of the plantation, you know, curtains or or you know may, maybe now it would be the idea of the, the plantation scene as sort of generalization of how plantations work in the world and how they form the world. Uh, and not you know, not because I don't think, or at least I didn't think, uh, you know, it, it doesn't exist. I mean, I do think that there there's a global possibility of, of talking about plantations or possibility of talking about global plantations. But, the you know, the specifics, I, I thought, you know, really matter, right? Tree species, uh, whether it's coffee plantations or tea plantations or rubber or peanut, whatever it is, uh, plantations, th those those matter. Um, the geographic location, the society, right, the climate in terms of, say, what diseases are there, uh, malaria, the, the forms of labor organization, right, all of these kind of really uh, specify plantations. And and there's also the, you know, as a historian thinking about time, right, the, there's the, you know, I don't 
I don't quite, not that Phil Curtin, I think, I think was saying this, but, um, you know, when, if we fall back on an idea of somehow a, a timeless global plantation or a, a timeless, at least within the, the era of capitalism, right? The uh, capitilo scene. And so, sort of through my work, I was understanding that ideologies and economic systems such as capitalism, socialism, really matter to plantations, right? And I think in that sense, or, or just rubber production, right? And I, I want to, in also that sense, move away just from talking about plantation. I mean, rubber production from a tree from South America that could take a number of forms. The ways the forms uh, come out are really informed by capitalism and socialism. But, you know, and then I, I kind of wrote about the specificities of, of rubber production in Vietnam and a little bit in Cambodia. But now as I, I kind of also got towards the end of the project and have been thinking about more of a kind of general way of thinking about global plantation. I, I guess what I would say is that during the Cold War and after uh, plantations, you know, whether it's under capitalism or socialism, plantations have, if we talk in more in Patel's words, have, have cheapened nature. So cheapened non-human nature and been dependent on cheap non-human nature. Uh, so especially, you know, flora and, and uh, uh, fauna, right? The the rubber tree. Um, so we, we have to take in consideration in which the exploitation of flora and, and you know, non-human nature continues under socialism and the socialist era after 1975. And so there's no sense in which the plantation's cheapening of non-human nature changes, whether it's uh, capitalism or socialism. So I, I guess you could call that sort of a you know global uh, form or global truth of plantation. But then what I do think that happened, at least for a brief time, is that under socialism, there was enough pushback against the cheapening of, of humans and, and of labor uh, under socialism. And so uh, you know, a lot of that's due to worker activism and the needs of the anti-colonial resistance and uh, the nationalist movement. But also, you know, ideologically, of course, socialism is about re reconfiguring human relations and making sure that humans are not held cheaply, right? And that human labor is not uh, cheapened to the degree that it is in under capitalism. And so for, I think I, I can say, you know, for a few years, at least after 1975, there is, you know, and, and leading up to it under kind of socialist rhetoric, there is a, there's much more of a emphasis on the importance of human labor. And so you can see this in images and symbolism. I mean, plantations appear on Vietnamese money and they appear as, you know, especially in the socialist era, they, uh, they appear in posters celebrating rubber workers, rubber labor, kind of these propaganda posters. But what you see, unfortunately, and I haven't done a lot of research on this, but you know, the, I've read um, people have been working on rubber in the 2000s, and then of course uh, living in Vietnam in the uh, late 90s and 2000s. You know, reading newspapers and and sort of seeing. Uh, the turn to a market economy. So, you know, what's called a, a socialist market economy or whatever you want to call it, that, you know, this, this kind of ad adoption of certain market forces uh, that starts in the mid 1980s and, and continues strengthens in the 1990s and 2000s, uh, maybe you call it neoliberalism, has kind of pushed back and, and you know, threatened a return to the cheapening of of human labor, right? Along with a continued cheapening of non-human nature. And so, you know, once again, in, in plantation, rubber plantations are a bit of an interesting case because they, they do remain under state control. So they're not open to 
the full market forces that other industries in Vietnam are, are open to. So they retain some of that sort of socialist protection of the worker. But you see, you see forces kind of pushing uh, to, to cheapen labor uh, on plantations. And in part, I think this is also why you see uh, a number of books coming out in the 1990s and 2000s about the heroic move, rubber movements and the ways in which rubber workers contributed to the anti-colonial movement that contribute to the socialist revolution. Um, you know, a lot of rubber workers were, as many people in Vietnam, caught between uh, the socialists and the, the, you know, the communist side and the capitalist side. But in the 2000s, there's an attempt to, to remind the, you know, Vietnamese society and the Vietnamese leaders of the communist party that uh, Vietnamese workers uh, rubber workers did a lot to contribute to the current political power. Uh, and so, you know, you can see that sort of attempt to push back against some of that, the cheapening of labor. So you see struggles over nature continuing, but struggles over labor returning, echoing at least in some ways, some colonial struggles over labor, right? And and so that's kind of a disturbing development to, to say the least. I, I, I do think though, too, there was, especially in the 2000s, a rubber boom in which China was just buying up all the rubber it could get. And so rubber was a very, it was a, it was an industry in Vietnam that was, was flush with money. And so that helped reduce some of the, the tensions between labor and management, but those tensions are, are definitely there. And, and you do see too, in, in some ways, the rubber uh, industry acting as a, a sort of way in which the Vietnamese state is extending its control over Cambodia and Laos. And, and you know, the Vietnamese state is using these state-owned rubber companies to, as kind of a you know, a spearhead to go into Cambodia and Laos and and either extract timber resources or gain control of land or whatnot, again, in, in ways that are reminiscent of, of colonial era strategies. Yeah, and I think that's really one of the things that strikes me the most about all of that is that we see so many of these ruptures along the way from the colonial, the post-colonial state, the socialist to the sort of market force orientation that we're seeing more in the 90s and the 2000s, but just how yeah, how these logics of colonialism are coming back in a really interesting way in the present moment. But yeah, so to close us out, I uh, just wanted to see really quickly if you had anything that you wanted to plug. And also if you could tell us a little bit about uh, where you see your work as a scholar going. Sure. So I think as much as I, I like rubber, you know, after you've done spent enough time with a project, you kind of want to go in different directions. So for my um, next project, I've sort of been, I'm still interested very much in this question of environmental health and problems that uh, uh, kind of Vietnamese society and Vietnamese intellectuals are dealing with. So I, I'm focusing more now on exploring different ways in which Vietnamese intellectuals, both in North Vietnam and South Vietnam, respond to environmental health problems, especially during the Cold War era. So this really, you know, contested time. And I, um, you know, I started in some ways with this question of malaria that uh, was a big issue on plantations. And so I'm, I, I have kind of started to become interested in the different networks that North and South Vietnamese medical doctors were engaging with and creating and forming during the Cold War in order to deal with uh, malaria, right? That was caused by the environmental disruption that takes place in the Cold War fighting, uh, the you know human migration, the the movements of people that's uh, created by this fighting. And so, one of the interesting aspects for me of this work is that you have competing global networks in North and South Vietnam. So in, in North Vietnam, you have 
um, the Soviet, especially Soviet uh, advisors and medical doctors coming in to uh, advise North Vietnamese doctors on how to keep malaria under control. And then in the South, you have the WHO, the World Health Organization, and uh, U.S. medical doctors advising uh, South Vietnamese and, you know, South Vietnamese engaging in the, in the project of malaria eradication. And, you know, one of the things that you see is actually the, the Soviets and the Northern Vietnamese project seems to be more successful than the South Vietnamese project, even though a lot of money is, is spent by the WHO. Uh, and, you know, what the WHO runs into is, uh, I mean, at least in reports that I've been reading in South Vietnam is that there's a kind of problem of governance in South Vietnam that it's hard to get down to the local level to to really kind of engage in these projects. Whereas in North Vietnam, you have a, um, for good or for ill, a, a much stronger state control over local projects. So that's, I'm, I'm interested in that. And then, uh, you know, another aspect of this Cold War environmental health project that I, I want to um, explore is the the question of the use of herbicides in Agent Orange, uh, and I've done a you know bit of work in, in thinking about different medical doctors. Uh, Ton Tatum, who is a, a liver surgeon originally trained by the French, uh, and then becomes in the, the 1970s very much in, interested in, in Agent Orange. But again, he's forming in, international networks. Uh, he's corresponding uh, this this medical doctor with basically anyone he can reach out to. So, you know, he's, he's writing letters to scientists and folks in, in the U.S. and California universities. He's becomes your know, best friends with uh, a French uh, Trotskyist uh, medical doctor who, he, you know, he and Tom Tatum and his wife become very good friends with this French uh, Jean-Jacques Crivine and his wife exchange countless letters. Um, but then, so you have these really kind of interesting and unexpected networks taking place, again, forming around uh, questions of how to deal with uh, environmental health problems, and so I, I that's I, that's where I'm I'm seeing the second project going, and I'd like to uh, I'd like to kind of also incorporate a little bit of digital humanities in this. I think a lot of uh, people are, and and sort of see if if that helps out visualizing any of these any of these networks. So that's that's where I think I'm going right now, but we'll see. Well, it sounds fascinating. I'm really looking forward to reading your next project. Thank you very much for joining us today, Mitch. Thank you. That was Jeffrey Guarneri, a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He was in conversation with Mitch Takiaso, an associate professor of the global environment at the University of Albany, and the author of Rubber and the Making of Vietnam, An Ecological History, 1897-1975, available now from the University of North Carolina Press. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Brian Hamilton and me, Carly Griffith. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to Edge Effects wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps us connect with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And, as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeffects.net.